0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir?
1: Yeah, I'm doing doing well. It's exciting to be talking about the scriptures with you. You know, you always put the stud in scripture study.
0: Oh my gosh. It is too early for this nonsense, Derek. Okay, so let's go ahead and move into the Come Follow Me. We will be discussing Doctrine and Covenants section 14 through 17 but before we do, just wanted to let you guys know that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So, Again, we are in sections 14 through 17. Derek, is there any uh, context you want to give to these verses before we dive in?
1: No, but I think you had something to say about introducing it.
0: Yeah. So, like, what I wanted to do is just kind of in the setup for these sections, just note that we, uh, we see in these scriptures, as well as earlier in Joseph's saga, we see the Lord using scatterings exoduses migrations that come from persecutions we see him using these things as opportunities for greater growth and uh, new movements in scriptural narratives we see this most obviously with uh with the Israelites, we see this with Abraham, Moses, we see this with Nephi, obviously in the Book of Mormon. And uh, later in the Book of Mormon, we see this with the people of Alma and the people of Limhi in their respective exoduses that we uh, talked about last year. Joseph has actually already gone through this once as he began the work of, or like just before he began the work of translation with the news of him getting the plates when the news of him getting the plate spread he faced some pretty intense persecution and he wouldn't be able to begin work on translation until he could you know do so in peace it was during that time that martin harris was able to offer both his services and some financial aid as joseph and emma moved to harmony and this is where joseph smith experienced some more growing pains like the loss of the 116 pages But also, he met Oliver, and he had some pretty incredible experiences in harmony, including the restoration of the priesthood and the baptism ordinance. Now this time, it was Joseph facing persecution in harmony, which prompted them to relocate again. And this time, it was to New York, where more growing pains would happen. But he would also get to meet the Whitmers, who would prove themselves to be an incredible blessing and asset to uh, Joseph and Oliver. And, uh, they would, I mean, they were basically just what the Lord ordered and, uh, they and Joseph and Oliver, they would all grow together in some pretty meaningful and life giving ways. And I just wanted to point out that this seems to be a pattern throughout scripture. There's almost always a growing experience in scatterings or Exodus is born of persecution. We see this in the allegory of the olive tree as well, where branches are scattered And they're grafted into different trees in hopes of bringing forth new, better, and stronger fruit. And we certainly see this with the descendants of the slaved Africans. We got grafted into America and were basically the source of almost all this country's greatest cultural achievements because of the growth and resilience we had to develop as a result of our persecutions and trials. Uh, uh, This is a bit of a different conversation, but relative to the allegory of the olive tree, Those branches that were uh, re-grafted after uh, having been scattered, they brought a new life with them. They weren't the same branches they were when they were taken away from their original mother tree. They had been in other trees. They had experienced another life away from their home trees. And at that final grafting, they were different branches than they were when they originally left the mother tree. With different experiences, having been integrated into other spaces, and that's when the good fruit came forth. And I think that matters when we consider how the work of gathering Israel has touched people of all nations, of all kinds of cultures, all kinds of backgrounds and languages and experiences, and they are expected to bring those with them as they are grafted in, because apparently that's part of bringing forth the best fruit. They are also expected to bring others along with them, which brings uh, which brings me back to Joseph's story. We see the Whitmers are finna to be the welcome balm to Joseph and Oliver as they flee per- persecution by putting them up in their home, and also being gathered themselves into this work and being instrumental in the gathering of others. As for them, and even their mom, become witnesses to the Book of Mormon, among other things. Right. Yeah. This is. Yeah. So this is yet another witness, I feel, of God taking a scattering or an exodus, some kind of uh, physical movement from persecution into a spiritual movement towards him. Joseph was taken from a place where he was persecuted into a space where he could grow and minister to new souls, anxious to serve God. And that's pretty much what this whole lesson is, the instruction concerning these souls. You know, Mm. God stay out here, bro. Turning stumbling blocks into stepping stones, and I don't know—I don't know that there's anywhere where that message is more apparent than in the margins right now. Our existence right. here yes. can feel like a stumbling block, but uh, you know, both you and I, Derek, we're witnesses, and many who listen are witnesses that God can turn those existences that are sometimes turbulent and cause us to stumble into stepping stones. Some of the most powerful testimonies of this work and of God's love and desire to include all people in his plan of salvation have come from those who have had those experiences or witnessed those experiences. So we're seeing yet another witness of the amazing things God can do in some of the most trying circumstances in Joseph's story. Twice now, we're seeing it.
1: Right. And that brings up the the reality that witnessing is a justice action, like speaking truth into a situation right. and naming something might be something that the the only thing that someone can do at, at that time, but there's definitely room for us speaking a bold moral witness into any situation. Right. So I had some thoughts about some of these things. So we've got okay. um, all four of our sections today are given to the various witnesses, so... David Whitmer is the subject of, or the addressee of section 14. Uh, Sections 15 and 16, almost identical, are given to John and Peter Whitmer each, and they were among the eight witnesses. And then section 17 Mm -hmm. is given to Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris, the three witnesses. But for today, rather than going verse by verse through all these sections, at least for my thoughts, I'm going to look through- definitely going verse by verse. I'm going to. Well, we don't have time for me to go verse by verse, right? <laughs> um, but So I'm just going to take us on a journey, a tumbling kaleidoscope of interrelated concepts, and I'm going to focus on word, witness, women, and the wonders of light.
0: Of course, you had to alliterate. Yes. Brilliant. I'm I know. already here for it.
1: So DNC c says to the three witnesses Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates. And notice that this text is bubbling with anticipation. It's about what's going to happen. It's the same with DNC 14 verse 1. A great and marvelous work is about to come forth unto the children of men. So often we see the advancing realm of God on earth being defined more by where it's going than by where it's been. All four of these sections are a foretaste of amazing things that will change the course of the testimony of millions of people. And I'd like to place these sections of the DNC in dialogue with the Johannine material of the new Testament, specifically okay. the gospel of John and first John. Ooh, let me give everyone a pro tip. One way of looking at the scriptures is to tie observations together like try to put one text in dialogue or in contrast with another, see what links you can make. And this is what I'm going to be doing, especially because I just love every excuse to talk about the New Testament. (laughs) But I'm going to tie together observations from all of these sources about the concept of bearing testimony. First John opens with this declaration, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, And our hands have handled of the word of life that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you and now let's turn to the marvelous and poetic prologue of john in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god the same was in the beginning with god all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shineth in the darkness and the darkness comprehended it not there was a man sent from god whose name was john the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe he was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light so here we have several themes we've got the word we've got the light we've got jesus as the creation of uh, the creator of all creation and then john the baptist bearing witness and these themes I see echoed in DNC 14, verses 9 and 10. Behold, okay. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who created the heavens and the earth, a light which cannot be hid in darkness. Wherefore, I must bring forth the fullness of my gospel from the Gentiles unto the house of Israel. And I think this description of Jesus as a light which cannot be hid is the ground for the inclusiveness that is announced in the next verse. Wherefore, Mm. I must bring forth the fullness of my gospel from the Gentiles Mm. unto the house of Israel. It's because the light of Christ cannot be hidden that it must spread out to all nations and all peoples. What do you think about
0: these verses? Yeah, I focused a lot on these verses too because I, um, like after hearing Reverend Dr. Fatima teach for the first time, I noticed that she made a point to let us know that she was going to introduce Christ in a different way every time that she spoke. She would always introduce Christ Mm -hmm. in a way that was relevant to... The mission that he was accomplishing at that particular time, and I was looking for that in these partic- in this verse in particular, because throughout the doctrine and covenants, there have been many introductions to Christ as he kind of like signed off uh, on a revelation, and I believe that the way he introduces himself differently in different contexts matters. I wanted to I wanted to know what are we supposed to gain from these introductions or these ways that Christ chooses to. Identify himself like there is clearly something in the power of Christ's identity that he is declaring to these people something relevant to the people that he's speaking to. And further, why did Jesus Christ to int- choose to introduce himself to David Whitmer in this way? Because there are mm. some differences here. We 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 read uh, Christ introducing himself as the light and life of the world several times prior to us getting here. But he words that a little bit differently to David Widmer. He says a light that cannot be hid in darkness. And he also adds that he is the uh, creator of the heavens and the earth. Uh, He does let everybody else know that he's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, or at least in most cases, he does that. But the fact that he adds these two uh, variations, creator of the heavens and the earth and a light which cannot be hid, not just the light and life, uh, that tells me there's something else to be looked for here. Mm -hmm. Um, So I looked for it and I was like, what are you trying to communicate to David Whitmer? And I'm guessing that certainly he wants to communicate his uh omnipotence and his omniscience telling somebody that the earth which they tend and you know remember the whitmers live on a farm here uh, and they tend a farm that uh he's letting him know that the earth that they tend a negligible fraction of for the source of their wealth was created by you know christ yeah and that's quite a flex and quite a statement of power and control it's almost as if he's saying all of this that farm you work that f- you know the entire earth, everything on it, I made it, and it's mine anyway, and it lives or dies at my will. That's the power of the being that just gave you these instructions and warnings. That's who I am. And then he goes on to say, I'm the light which cannot be hid. And what I really like about this metaphor is that it reinforces something that we were taught earlier and discussed in the Doctrine and Covenants with the loss of the 116 pages, that in spite of the darkness that exists, That can't stop the light from shining. The work of God can't be frustrated. When we let our lights shine, there's not necessarily a guarantee that everybody's going Mm -hmm. to appreciate it, but nobody's going to deny its existence. They can't deny its existence in good conscience, and they certainly can't defy its existence with any any earthly power. That was another thing that was made evident in the loss of the 116 pages. And this is why, this is a big reason why I, uh, feel it's it's so important for folks like us to speak our truths in the name of christ god is telling david widmer that the work he's engaged in not unlike the work we're engaged in it's destined to succeed and his instructions to david for his participation were very simple very simple Pray in faith, and you'll receive the Holy Ghost, and then you'll have utterance that you may stand as a witness to the things you shall both hear and see, and also that you may declare repentance. There's that word witness again. Right. And bro, like this is, this instruction, this is for us too. Like women, LGBTQs, black folks, and all the others on the margins, this is, this is all we need to do our part in the affirmation of these identities in the name of Christ. We got to mm-hmm. pray, receive the Holy Ghost, then tell people what we've seen and heard. Witness to them what God has witnessed to us about who we are. Witness to them what we've experienced in his name and the light might, that the light might shine in darkness, that we might call folks to repent for their participation in or complicity in our oppression. That doesn't guarantee that people are going to hear us every time, but they Mm -hmm. certainly aren't going to be able to say, we didn't hear this, or they're not going to be able to say, we didn't know, because, you know, we've been letting them know. And uh, that's what the Lord is telling uh, David Whitmer to do, which kind of brings me to this next verse. Uh, I I think it's verse 9. Uh, He says, wherefore, which is really important, by the way, he's saying because of this or for this cause, because I am he who created this earth, because I am he that runs this mess, because I am he that can't be stopped, I must bring forth the fullness of my gospel from the Gentiles unto the house of Israel. It's almost as if he's saying, I have to do this because that's clearly what I do. This is God's version of all I do is win. And I just thought Mm -hmm. that was so dope that God decided to let David Whitmer know this is who I am. And because that's who I am, this is what I have to do. This is my character. This is what the destiny of this work is. And that he's saying this to David Whitmer, especially knowing the course of David Whitmer's life from here on, uh, you know, that just, I mean, that has layers to it. It's almost as if God knows that this is a possibility for David Whitmer. And uh, this has a lot of other applications. Like what else has to happen because of who God is? Like what other destinies await the church or more specifically the church's people because he who ministered to the marginalized and he who chose radical compassion over stringent legalism because that guy runs this work. Mm-hmm. Like this is so empowering for folks like us because this is the God we worship. He has witnessed us, witnessed to us rather, that we have value, that we, that we are necessary and that there's a place at the table for us. And because of that witness from God, you know, there's some questions here. What is our destiny as we follow these instructions given to David Whitmer? And I just think that's so empowering that we are mm-hmm. able to have a pretty clear picture as to what our destiny is as children of God, even on the margins, as to what our future is going to look like. Because the God we worship is the same God that is that runs everything. And the same God right. whose, dark, whose light cannot be hid in darkness. I, I just love that so much.
1: Yes, I think there's some closet imagery with the light not being able to be hid in the darkness. Ah, yeah. You know, there's just something about our true identities that we can't hide. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's cases where, you know, various missionaries or people in the ward or people in certain families or people in certain callings are told not to tell people their truest identity. And it's Mm -hmm. like, if they don't say it, the rocks are going to cry out with that news. Like, you just cannot hide that. There's just something beautiful about celebrating who God created you to be and how, despite what others may think, there's absolutely a place for us in the church. And saying that publicly isn't scandalous, except it scandalizes Satan, who steps back on his tail any time a child of God decides to join this church. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to. I want to fold this back into. Let's see. We've got the three witnesses, and then the the other two Whitmer brothers in these four sections. But I actually want to go back, and rather than focusing just on those, I want to fold in the additional witness of women into this kaleidoscopic exploration. I want to look at Sweet. Mary Whitner, Mary Whitmer here, and Mary Whitmer was the mother of David Whitmer, and here's her testimony about the plates as retold by her grandson john c whitmer here's what he says i john c whitmer have heard my grandmother mary m whitmer say on several occasions that she was shown the plates of the book of mormon by a holy angel one evening when after having done her usual day's work in the house she went to the barn to milk the cows pause this is this goes back to the earthiness of creation like this is the the jesus who created all things and here she's working with the things of the earth anyway back to the quote she met a stranger carrying something on his back that looked like a knapsack at first she was a little afraid of him but when he spoke to her in a kind friendly tone and began to explain to her the nature of the work which was going on in her house that is the translation of the book of mormon She was filled with unexpressible joy and satisfaction. He then untied his knapsack and showed her a bundle of plates, which in size and appearance corresponded with the description subsequently given by the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. This strange person turned the leaves of the Book of Plates over, leaf after leaf, and also showed her the engravings upon them, after which he told her to be patient and faithful in bearing her burden a little longer, promising that if she... Would do so she should be blessed, and her reward would be sure if she proved faithful to the end. the personage then suddenly vanished with the plates, and where he went she could not tell. I think it's significant that she was chosen to be uh, a witness before the men right the the vision of mm. the the three witnesses and then the the eight those didn't come until after this
0: where have we seen that before
1: yeah. And so we'll get, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this advance witness of women as a foundational Christian principle. So I'd like to return back to our friend, the Gospel of John. And John 20 includes an amazing narrative where not only is Mary Magdalene the first witness to the empty tomb and the risen Lord, but the risen Lord commissions Mary Magdalene to function as the apostle to the apostles, delivering to them an authoritative message given by Christ through her. And this, you cannot, you can't exaggerate the importance of this. This is amazing and profound. The proclamation of the good news for John is founded on the testimony of a woman. In fact, the witness of women is a significant theme throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus' public ministry begins with the wedding at Cana in chapter two, where Mary, his mother, Boldly challenges. There's so many Marys. Have you noticed all this? Um, yes, I have. Where Mary boldly challenges Jesus to change the water into wine, even though he said his time was not yet come. And just as an aside, I want to say Mary is a good model of faith here. A lot of people say, "Well, you're not sustaining the whatever," but look, was Mary sustaining Jesus when he told him, when she told him what needs to be done? yes because she believed in him she believed in Mm. his character and what he promised to do and why he came into this world she's like you came into the world for this purpose i'm gonna see you do it right that's faith that's not (laughs) apostasy that's not unorthodoxy it's not any of these things that we on the margins love to get accused of i mean people love to accuse us of those things anyway Mm -hmm. still here guys we still here yeah um, and I, I, lo- I just want to say I love this church I didn't join this church by accident like I am here because I want to be here like I could if I wanted mm-hmm. to be in a, some other church I would have stayed there but I'm here because I truly believe that this is God's work upon this earth and I'm not going anywhere anyway back mm-hmm. to what I was saying so here in, in chapter 2 of John Mary affirms her testimony of Jesus as the true Messiah Who has come with power then later jesus expands the light of the gospel to non-jews by witnessing directly to the samaritan woman in chapter 4 and then she becomes a foundational witness to the people of her village and then later jesus's public ministry in john ends in chapter 11 with the comforting of mary mary and martha of bethany concerning the death of their brother lazarus martha testifies i know that he meaning lazarus i know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day that's verse 24 and then after jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life to her martha pronounces one of the greatest confessions of faith in the entire new testament listen to the words of her testimony okay i believe that thou art the christ the son of god which should come into the world that's in verse 27 Hmm. And I love how the leading New Testament scholar Elizabeth Schüssler Fiorenza reflects on these powerful examples of women witnesses in the Gospel of John. This is what she says in her book, "In Memory of Her: A Feminist Theological Reconstruction of Christian Origins." And it's a long quote, but I'm going to quote it verbatim just because I love her language here. And she has this interesting way she does uh, the the typesetting here where she has s slash h e like for she or he because she does not want to narrow the gender of the author of the gospel of john it could have been a woman we don't know like we don't know so so here's what she does she says quote the discipleship and leadership of the johannine community is inclusive of women and men Although the women mentioned in the fourth gospel are examples of discipleship for women as well as men, it is nevertheless astonishing that the evangelist gives women such a prominent place in the narrative. She or he begins and ends Jesus' public ministry with a story about a woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary of Bethany. Alongside the Pharisee Nicodemus, she or he places the Samaritan woman. Alongside the Christological confession of Peter, she or he places that of Martha. Four women and the beloved disciple stand under the cross of Jesus. Mary of Magdala is not only the first to witness the empty tomb, but also the first to receive an appearance of the resurrected Lord. Thus, at crucial points of the narrative, Women emerge as exemplary disciples and apostolic witnesses. That such a preeminence of women in the Johannine community and its apostolic tradition caused consternation among other Christians is expressed in 427 and the following verses, where the disciples are shocked that Jesus converses and reveals himself to a woman. The evangelist emphasizes, however, that the male disciples knew better than to openly question and challenge Jesus' egalitarian praxis. Close quote. <laughs> and in the end she's talking about the Samaritan woman again, where the disciples come up to them at the well, Jesus and the woman alone, and they're like they marvel that he was talking to a woman, but they don't say, Why are you talking to a woman? They know better than not to say, Why why are you doing that?
0: <laughs> not with Jesus.
1: Yeah, and don't so try Jesus either. <laughs> I'd like to let our journal journey tumble back to the witnesses of the Book of Mormon again, because we probably don't talk about the women witnesses enough. And I wanna focus on two other women who were witnesses, either of the physical plates or those who had a supernatural vision. And here's the testimony of Emma Smith given very late in life, I think it's 1879, to her son, Joseph Smith III. And here's what she said. The plates often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth, which I had given him to fold them in. Once I felt of the plates as they thus lay on the table, tracing their outline and shape. They seemed to be pliable like thick paper and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb, as one sometimes thumbs the edges of a book. There's a large, she has a lot more material in this interview, She, the, but I'm only going to, quote this one section about her testimony of the reality of the plates also i'd like to talk about lucy mac smith joseph's mother and okay. she had a vision uh, uh, no not a vision she had experience with the plates herself she saw them folded up as she saw them around the house she, she was a witness to the translation but the other thing is that lucy mac smith recounts that Lucy Harris from a few weeks ago also had a vision of the plates. And here's what Lucy Mac Smith recounts. Quote, Lucy Harris said that a personage appeared to her who told her that as she had disputed the servant of the Lord, Joseph Smith Jr., and said his word was not to be believed, and had also asked him many improper questions, she had not done that which she had not done that which not right in the sight of God. After which he said to her, Behold, here are the plates. Look upon them and believe. So, um, yeah, at least according to Lucy Harris, a personage appeared to her saying, Look, you're doubting, but here is uh, here are the plates. And... Uh, And so there were at least two other women, like I said, Lucy Max Smith, Joseph's mother, who had some experience of the plates in her household, and then also Catherine Smith Salisbury, who's, uh, now I think that's the sister of Joseph Smith, who also saw the plates around the house. And with such Mm. a great cloud of witnesses, we have a fuller picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, as we... See him described in John 1 verse 14. And the light of the world. We see this in John 8 verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I just, I just so find this so amazing how this all ties back together with this concept of witness and who gets honored with the privilege of being a witness. And then in the end, yeah. we all have a privilege of being witnesses of the Book of Mormon in our own way and in our own language, in our own capacities, right? I too am a witness Mm. of the Book of Mormon. I haven't seen the plates, but I have seen the fruits of the gospel in my life and in other other people's lives. And this ends up testifying not of Joseph Smith, like it's not about Joseph Smith, it's about Jesus. And the point of these witnesses is to get out of the way and point to
0: Jesus. Yes sir, yes sir. While we're still talking about uh, witnesses, and since you uh, talked about what the purpose of that was in this particular case, I do want to draw attention to something that I noticed in section 17, verse 4, because I did find this significant in terms of describing to the witnesses why they needed to, uh, you know, why their participation was necessary. Uh, The verse says, and this you shall do, that my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed, that I may bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men in this work. Now, like like I said before, one of the biggest things that allies can do is uh, be a witness. The experiences, like primarily to the experiences of the marginalized, especially the injustices they'll face. Uh, I can't tell you how many times... I'm relieved that if I'm ever caught in a compromising situation, that if there's a white person around that's like a witness, I can at least feel a little safer because at least then I'll know that whoever's acting sideways towards me or around me will at least be mindful of their presence. Um, But I want to use uh, this particular example of simply being watchful and present uh, to highlight the power of witnessing in Joseph's life personally. And I want to use his own words to describe his joy in having uh, witnesses and liken that to us a little bit. So where did I get this from? I think this is from one of the church history manuals. Maybe this is in the come follow me. I don't remember where I got this quote, but you can Google it at at your leisure. So this is Joseph Smith, quote, you do not know how happy I am the Lord has now caused the plates to be shown to three more besides myself. They have seen an angel who has testified to them, and they will have to bear witness to the truth of what I have said. For now they know for themselves that I do not go about to deceive the people, and I feel as if I was relieved of a burden which was almost too heavy for me to bear. And it rejoices my soul that I am not any longer to be entirely alone in the world. Close quote. Yo, that last part hit me super hard, like, to not be entirely alone in the world. Like, I can't imagine how relieved. I mean, I can imagine, but, like, obviously not to that extent and in that situation. Uh, I'm equal parts happy for Joseph and sad as well for some of the marginalized in the church who can't say the same about people who have actually borne witness to their marginalization or their oppression. Um, I'll never forget. Back in uh, 2016, Mm -hmm. we lost Alton Sterling and Philando Castile in the same week, and many of our congregations said nothing. Everybody saw George Floyd die last summer, and I don't Mm -hmm. know that we said enough. I don't know that we did enough. Um, Fortunately, my congregation or members of my congregation did say something. But I feel like one of our biggest weaknesses as a church is bearing witness to the injustices the rest of God's children face that we literally watched George Floyd die among hundreds of others and have several black members pleading for men at the top to do something. And the best we got was a general authority finally saying black lives matter at a BYU devotional and several general condemnations of racism and platitudes about equality in like in the last general conference. That 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 this is the best mm-hmm. a church with our resources and with our restored gospel could do is an indictment of our failure to bear witness in ways that, in ways that do for marginalized people, what Oliver David and Martin did for Joseph. Right. Like Joseph wasn't alone, but Black people still bear this burden for the most part without the church. Much of the nation, uh, the Black members, the NAACP. And others have seen the death and the pattern of brutality and they will have to bear witness of the truth of what those like us say because they know for themselves that we don't go about to deceive people, yet we still bear this burden without the church. Bearing witness isn't just an imperative for the advancement of the church. like The Lord did hint at this when he stated why he wanted the witnesses, but it's also because the Lord made this more personal and made this about Joseph's life when he said, uh, uh, what do you say here? That my servant Joseph Smith Jr. may not be destroyed so that I may bring about my righteous purposes unto the children of men in this work. He made this personal to Oliver, Martin, and uh, David. Like, it's not just an imperative for the advancement of the church. It's about, you know, the lives of those people involved that we're bearing witness to. And I think it's important to know that bearing witness is an imperative not just to our advancement as a church but also to the an imperative to the safety the security and the lives of the very people that we are supposed to be serving and uh, ministering to Mm -hmm. so i just wanted to make sure that was brought out as well how the lord brought out joseph's life to the people he made it personal more personal for them and i just wanted to make that more personal for us we have a responsibility to bear witness to those who you know we're supposed to be serving and those on the margins
1: yeah and i think and this might be some 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 tough medicine to hear but me, there's this sort of cultural perception i think among white latter day saints that the gospel is about white people and Ooh. and black people are just kind of somehow they're kind of squeezed in or Like, what are they doing here? Something like that. And I think this feeds into how we react to the the violent murder of black folks at the hands of police, Uh right? It's like, oh, I think there's a different reaction among many people when it happens to a black person than a white person.
0: Yeah, big time.
1: And it's because they they're not seen as full humans or as fully part of uh, the American world or in our, in the church, they're not seen as full members of the church. It's it's almost disgusting to have a f- to phrase it that way, but that's what it looks like, how people
0: respond. what did you say a few weeks ago? It was so poetic and beautiful about how it's not just about all being welcome, mm-hmm. but about this being a place made for yeah, you. Yeah, right. It, the People say, well, everyone's
1: welcome here, but that's not what we need. What we need is to say, to hear, and to believe this was designed for you. And that's what I love about yes. Jesus is he designed yes. everything for you. Like he knows us yes. as individuals and makes a path for each one of us that, that yes, may sir. be
0: different. Yes, sir.
1: But I think that's that's kind of why our, our people are so so slow to mention George Floyd is because we think oh that just that's happening to someone else
0: that's them that's not us
1: yeah and i i think what we also don't want to do is make black people as honorary white people that doesn't fix it either like oh i'm going to i'm going to I'm going to mourn the the death of George Floyd as if he were a white person. Like, why should you make him white in order to care about him? Mm -hmm. You should care about him and all black folks as black folks. And you don't need Mm -hmm. to make them like you in order to have empathy and do the right thing for them.
0: Yeah, right. And I really like how uh, you made this about Like This goes back to what I was saying earlier about the allegory of the olive tree, about how this isn't so much an assimilation, or the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about assimilation, it's about integration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Bringing people in as they are, making things accessible to them as they are. Like uh, That's part of why we are able, that's why the tree was able to bring forth good fruit in the end, is because these were not assimilated branches, these were integrated branches. These were people that we honored and valued because of who they were, not because of who they were willing to become. Like that's, And sometimes I feel like that. This is a little bit off topic, but sometimes we use mm-hmm. the gospel as a missionary tool of assimilation and not necessarily one of integration. I think you said this early on in the show about how when we do missionary work, we often turn the places we go to overseas into mini Utahs. And uh, that's Not what this is about. That shouldn't be our mission. Our mission shouldn't be to turn people into something that we as a people would value culturally, but to value them as they are so that they might bring the beautiful parts of themselves that would allow us to create the best fruit that we can possibly make. This is Mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. the gathering of Israel should be.
1: Yeah, and I would want to do some more research about the early history of the saints and the conversion of so many folks in the British Isles who then mm. immigrated to the United States and apparently they were allowed to bring their culture with them and right. it, like the church was was so so profoundly enriched by the inclusion of of all these gifts and talents and uh, that everyone brought with them as converts we're, we're a church of converts like starting with yeah. Joseph you can count him as a convert everyone else you can count as converts too like Mm -hmm. the first generations of the 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 church were were converts and so much of our history was converts right and it's worth mentioning
0: that our third prophet was a brit
1: yes yeah yes that is true um he's our only non-american prophet we need some more non-american prophets like let's get samuel the lamanite up in here and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, have some some brown prophets. Um, for real. But I love this. Uh, I'm going to sort of fold in this uh, from verse 8 of section 17. It says, And if you do these last commandments of mine which I have given you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. For my grace is sufficient for you, and you shall be lifted up at the last day. I love this phrasing of the gates of hell shall not prevail And this, of course, is an echo of what we see in Matthew chapter 16. Mm -hmm. But we should also frame this as the grace uh, that the gates of racism shall not prevail against the church. The gates Mm -hmm. of sexism and patriarchy shall not prevail. They're up here, like the gates are right at our door, right? But in the end, they will not prevail. Like Satan's kingdom will fall. And the gates of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia and queer phobia will not prevail. It looks like they're gonna prevail sometimes, but Jesus is on our side, and once you've done that, it's over right we will uh we will
0: prevail Yes, sir, yes, sir. And I wanted to see if you had any feelings on uh, sections 15 and 16, because I think it's just uh, super interesting that we come across two revelations for two different people that say more or less the exact same thing. And I don't really have too much to say about that itself, except for, you know, it'd just be really interesting if uh, Peter Whitmer and John Whitmer didn't really... Know what each of them wanted to ask the prophet, or, you know, if they asked pretty much the same question unbeknownst to the other. But uh, something I do want to bring out is the nature of the response to uh, David and, or sorry, not David, but to Peter and John Whitmer. Something that stuck out to me for whatever reason, or I I know the reason now, but uh, it was sections. 15 verse 5. Just for context again, Peter and John Whitmer wanted to know what their place in all this was. They wanted to know the thing which would be of greatest value to each of them. And sections 15 and 16 are the Lord's response to them. Now, the Lord hasn't necessarily told them anything yet by the time we get to verse 5, but I do want to point out what the Lord says to them before he even lets them know what it is that they are supposed to do. And before they've even really done anything. But the part I wanted to highlight was verse five, blessed are you for this thing. Now this thing is referring to something that the Lord said in verse four. And the thing that he's making reference to is the desire to know what would be of most worth to Peter and John Widmer. In other words, the Lord is blessing them for simply having their question. And one that Mm -hmm. basically amounts to, where do I fit in in all of this? Tell me what I can do so I can do it. That's the intent behind the question. And the Lord blesses them for simply wanting to know, but probably more so because he knows they're about to act on the answer that they receive. Now, this can be read a few ways. One is that the Lord blesses us for coming to him with questions. And as a Sunday school teacher, Derek, you can probably... Mm Uh, say something of how good it makes you feel to receive a thoughtful question because you feel the intent behind it is is pure. You can feel that people are engaging the lesson. Now, another reading goes back to a recurring word that we've seen through the last several sections. We've seen the word desire several times. It even appears multiple times in in you know single single verses. The Lord blesses them for their desire to know where they fit in. Um. And we've and we've read several times already that a desire to serve god is worthy of blessing and even qualifies people for the work of salvation we first saw that i think in verse or in section four so coming to the lord with questions that have pure intent behind them in and of itself is worthy of blessing and in this case we know that wanting to know our place in god's plan is a noble thing to ask. So many people like us, Derek, have that very question. How do I fit in? Where do I fit in? What do I need to do because of that knowledge? I think it's just super empowering for people who are different, for people that think differently, love differently, look differently, that when they ask how they can fit in, the Lord can give them a super validating answer and wants to give them a super validating answer, but even just wants to bless them for simply coming to them with such an honest question and an an intentional question. And then of course we see in verse six that the Lord does in fact give him that answer when he says, the thing which will be of most worth unto you will be to declare repentance unto this people that you may bring souls unto me, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my father. And of course, I've, I've likened this to myself because this is something that I feel very strongly right now uh, when trying to figure out exactly what my vocational goal should be or where I mm-hmm. should be pointing myself professionally, academically, or personally. I have felt this very strongly, and I'm sure you felt it too, Derek, where the thing of most worth to us is perhaps to declare repentance unto people because of you know who we are. We also are among those who are seeking how we in our unique positions can best serve the church, can best serve the kingdom of God, can best bring it to pass. And in the Whitmer's case, it looks like it's declaring repentance unto folks so that people will be able to come unto Christ. And I feel that very much, I feel very much the same. I, I was curious about this wording, Derek, and I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about verse six in particular, or even verse five, because uh, I just love how the Savior words this—how it's the most important thing, the most the thing of most worth—is to declare repentance. Do you have any uh, thoughts about the broader application of this verse, or even the more specific application to John and Peter?
1: Right. I think one of the most important. Uh, here's another pro tip because I'm trying to empower people to do what I do is is a slow reading of the text, go word by word, ask why is this word here? What other words could have been used to help you figure out well why this one was chosen? Right? What could have been said like and then just really do a slow reading of these these verses, and I think some things really jump out at me about this. You've got like you said in verse four that you've got many times this is a repeated repeated request from the lord right a lot there's room for repeated requests a lot of people think we're apostates for having repeated requests but yes we're going to keep asking till we get our answer anyway Mm -hmm. so the question was what is the, the most worth and then the answer is blessed are you for this thing so there's a blessing here for the person who asks and gets this answer for speaking my words which i have given you according to my commandments and then here's the answer in verse six i say unto you that the thing which will be of the most worth unto you will be to declare repentance and let's talk about repentance repentance i think is a joyful thing both for because what it is is it's the restoration of a relationship. Like, why isn't that joy? I think a lot of people think, Ooh. a lot of people think repentance is like, uh, you know, you suffer and it's a hard thing and it's a, you gotta do this thing and you've gotta get punished. That's not, you know, repentance actually avoids the uh, the consequences. It's And you're not repenting of who you are. Right, I think we in the Latter-day Saint community don't have this understanding of original sin that we have this sinful nature that is who we are. Sin is a thing that we don't want. It's this aff- affliction that is separate from us that's somehow a parasite on us that we want to get rid of, right? Mm-hmm. And so repentance is like if I had a big weight around my feet and and I do I want to repent of that weight? Yes, I do, right? I don't want to repentance is a good thing because i'm throwing off that weight and so declaring this repentance is of the most worth because you are doing the greatest good by helping people become fully their potential and who they were meant to be and who they should have been and who they will be and Mm -hmm. i love the fact that repentance you know people People criticize Jesus for hanging around the sinners, right? And he, his response was, look, I'm having this party with the sinners because there's more joy with one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. We see this throughout um, uh, throughout the Gospels, uh, especially in Luke chapter 15 about the, the prodigal son. Uh, but notice a slow reading here. To declare repentance. What is the purpose of declaring repentance? That you may bring souls unto me. Like I said, this is the restoration of of relationship, like making it right again. This is justice Mm. and and peace and dignity and equality here, all embedded here. That's why repentance is good. Repentance is a good thing. Now, notice this, this clause here at the end, this purpose clause, that you may rest with them in the kingdom of my father let's let's break it apart you've got this prepositional phrase with them that you the one who's declaring repentance may rest with them those who repent in the kingdom of my father now i don't want to talk about this too long but one of the biggest thing that bugs me is people say oh the point of the gospel and the point of sealing is that you're going to be with your parents again like we're all gonna be with everyone right like it's you are really reducing and denigrating the concept of the sealing power by just reducing it to a simple being with someone right that is not the point of sealing that is not the point if you look at dnc 132 carefully and i'll talk more about this next week it's not the whole it's not about being with someone again right there's some more stuff going on that i'll unpack later But here, we've got this proof that you will eternally rest with people that you've restored into the gospel, right? Sealing isn't the only way to be with someone forever. Like here, you've got a wonderful example, if you read the text slowly, that people who do missionary work will be with the people that they've restored forever in the kingdom of their father, Right. I think that is so beautiful, mm. you know. Poor Elder Nielsen. Elder Nielsen was the 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 first missionary who taught me here, and he's the one who baptized me. He's going to be stuck with me forever. I don't know if he planned that, <laughs> but he's going to be stuck with me, right? Uh, forever. Uh, you know, we're going to be with each other. So I don't. What I don't want to do is is have people get nervous about. Oh no! If I don't do this right, if I don't step on the right line and have my toe over this. Uh, Like, you know how in basketball, if your toe goes over this line, like a big bad thing happens, right? (laughs) You can tell I'm not a sports fan. You can tell I'm not a sports (laughs) fan, but apparently there's these lines on the thing. And if you, if the ball or your foot goes outside this line, something bad happens. And people take that. That that is is not untrue. (laughs) And people... um, People take this about the gospel like, oh, no, if your toe goes over this line, you're never going to see your mom again. Like, that is abusive. Do not believe that. We are not, this isn't a basketball game. This is a loving um, family. Our heavenly parents want to to, to love us and, and be with us forever. I mean, that's, there's no booby traps here that are set up like these lines that they're going to. trick you and trap you that like parents aren't out to trap their children if they're good parents anyway so i'm rambling a lot we can talk more about this next week and then more about it when we get into dnc 132 about what the real promise of the ceiling power is but it's not just being together that is that is just really dumbed down to think oh it's the point of it is to just be together
0: yes sir i'm looking forward to that discussion was there anything else in the sections you wanted to discuss before we uh, wrap up?
1: No other than one thing that you should probably not ever ask me if there's more I want to say because <laughs> you've learned I that you've know. learned that lesson. Like okay. You mentioned earlier verse 4 of chapter 17 that I may bring about my righteous purposes and I think a slow reading brings out that word my. That
0: oh yeah we've seen that a few times in this section in these sections haven't yes. we? the Lord making this uh, yes. more personal more possessive right
1: and what I love here is and let's go back to verse uh, verse six of section fourteen where Jesus says to David Whitmer seek to bring forth and establish my Zion ain't that different like isn't this that is the different? first time we've seen Zion referred to as my Zion. My Zion. And I love of that because for the cause this, of Zion. this is built on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's not Joseph Smith's Zion. It's not Derek Knox's Zion. It's Jesus's Zion. And he's the one that leads it, that defines it, that determines it, that empowers it, that unfolds it. And it's not a human endeavor. I think that's that's one of the the base, bottom line, foundational points of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon say this is not a human endeavor. It's not Joseph's endeavor. They can point to this as a divine endeavor. This is Jesus's Zion. And I love the fact that looking just even at these small words can have a big impact on how we take the text.
0: Mm. I
1: better stop talking before you ask me if I have any more thoughts.
0: <laughs> alright fine 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 they were great thoughts though and uh, you kept them impressively short I'm proud of you bro oh yay Is nothing? I mean there can always be something else but we're at an hour right now so let's go ahead and wrap things up before we do want to remind you guys That Dialogue, A Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That is dialogue journal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can people find you us? You can
1: find us at beyond the block on Twitter and Instagram at btblds and also on Facebook.
0: Yes. And by way of announcements, we do have uh, this Saturday starting at 9 a.m. Mountain standard time will be the, I th- I think it's 9 a.m. At least that's when the first keynote is. But it will be the fourth annual Black LDS Legacy Conference. I have talked a lot about this already, guys. Y'all already know how Derek and I feel, but this is seriously one of the most spiritually uplifting events that I will mm-hmm. attend throughout the entire year. Basically, it basically spiritually invigorates me and feeds me in ways that conference does and more like Mm -hmm. this is a spiritual highlight of my year is going to this conference. And in case it wasn't already clear, you don't have to be black to go. You know, you can be whatever color of any persuasion. Everybody is welcome. Like we honestly mean that everybody is welcome to come. In fact, everybody needs to come is what I would say. If you think you don't need to come, you probably do. Like this is something we need to, as you know, general membership of the church need to make a priority. Like we need to make this work of understanding our black brothers and sisters, understanding their journey in this faith and understanding the perspectives that they bring. That needs to be an honest and consistent part of our anti-racism work. Like there are mm-hmm. three things. Like you need you need awareness. Like it's, it's very helpful to read books, to uh, attend uh, events, hear talks and stuff, but you also really need to build relationships like there's no the majority of the action that i see that inspires change in people comes from relationships and Mm -hmm. i feel like that's going to be hard to do if you don't make an honest effort to come to events like these because this is pretty much the only event i think that happens throughout the year that is focused on this particular work unique work of black latter-day saints so as a latter-day saint you should probably make an effort to go And uh, I think that's all I'm going to say about that. I want to leave a special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing our stuff and also to David Doyle for editing our transcripts. You guys are rock stars. Also, thanks to our collaborators who have been, you know, just pitching in and giving us ideas and, you know, offering their labor to us to just make this whole thing more accessible. Like, people have had some really great ideas on how we can make this content more accessible to others and also get our mission, get our word out there in new and unique and profound ways. So thank you guys for your contributions. It really, really means a lot. Did I leave anything out, Derek, in terms of announcements? No, I think or that's thank it. Yous? Wonderful. Then with that, brothers and sisters, siblings in Christ, thank you for joining us today. Till we meet again next week.
1: Yeah, see you again next week. Bye.